job putting that together for us. Thank you all so much for that. So today we are concluding a series uh, that we've been doing over the last few weeks, looking at the grace of God. We've been calling it the gift. Uh, We've been looking specifically at the word uh, charis, which often gets translated as grace. And one of the things that we've seen in this study is that this word charis, it has a a spectrum of meaning. So when we talk about the grace of God, uh, many times we have a difficult time uh, defining it or even putting words to uh, describing it to others. We just say things like grace is amazing, grace is awesome, or God is gracious. In fact, uh, we as a church family, we're founded on the idea of God's grace. And in fact, it's such an overriding principle, we wrote it up on the wall. And yet, I think for many of us, we might take for granted that language or that word of grace. And so throughout this series, uh, we've been looking at what, great, what God's grace uh, is, what it means in our lives, how we respond to it. And we found uh, that God's grace gift, this, this word charis, that gets translated as grace, it has a range of meaning. It can mean a gift or uh, the, the gift, the object itself. It can mean the disposition of the giver uh, towards someone else or even the act of giving one favor. It can refer to what we commonly refer to as grace or gracious, uh, which again speaks to the character of the gift giver. It can also refer to uh, the response of the recipient, namely thankfulness or gratitude. And so this language of grace, it has a wide spectrum uh, of meaning. And we have been asking ourselves as we've been studying together, what is it about God's grace that is so amazing? There's four overriding principles that we've uh, discovered. Number one, that God's grace is given without regard to the worth of the recipient. We see not that the recipients are worth less, but God does not look upon those who receive his grace and first say, well, I wonder how much they're worth, and then decide to give them his grace gift. Second, we see that God's gift is amazing because it is not given out of obligation. God is not feeling compelled because of something that we have done in order to give us his grace gift. Number three, God's grace gift is super abundant abundantly lavish. In fact, have you guys ever heard about Christmas before? Christmas is a celebration of the superabundant lavishness of God's gift. As we see in the Christmas story, the ultimate expression of God's grace gift is giving himself superabundantly lavish. And then finally, God's grace gift is effective in changing things for the better. It changes us. For those of us that have turned from ourselves, turned from our rebellion, turned from our sin, and turned, repented and turned to Jesus, we see that our lives are changed. They're transformed. In fact, Samantha, who got baptized just a few moments ago, didn't she give testimony to the life-changing power of the good grace of God? Did you guys hear in her words? You guys heard that? So it's effective in changing things for the better. And so we see in the Christmas account this this ultimate expression of God's grace, namely himself. But I want to lean into this a little bit more. In fact, as we conclude our series, I want to invite you into seeing the whole uh, of human history through this lens of God's grace. In fact, uh, we're going to go through the whole Bible today. The excitement level is subpar. Uh, 
Now, I, I failed to mention we're going to do it in 30 minutes or less. Does that make you feel better? Some of us are like, we're going to be here until Christmas. So we're going to do though, we're going to look at the whole Bible. And of course, we're only going to do a bird's eye view. But I'm going to encourage you to see not only the whole story of the Bible, but also your story through the lens and based upon the foundation of God's grace, his good grace gift to us. Now, uh, for those of us that are familiar with church, maybe familiar with the Bible, maybe we've been in Christianity for a little while. And, and by the way, I know not all of us have. I know that there's a lot of us who maybe this is the first church we've ever been to before. We didn't grow up with it. And, and, and if you're there, man, I know there's a ton of us there in that space. And I'm so glad you're here, whether you're here in the room or watching online. Uh, and, and, and I love that you're here today because this, uh, this uh, message today is going to give a great overview of what following Jesus is all about. So I'm glad you're here. But if you've been around church for a little while, or maybe you've, you're familiar with Christianity, one of the things that you might have picked up along the way, or maybe heard along the way, is this idea, that there's two Testaments in your Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you look at the Old Testament, and you look at the character of God, God's very upset. In fact, many of us might even have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is really like mean and angry all the time. But we might say, the God of the New Testament is nice and loving and meek and mild. Have you guys ever heard that? that something like that before, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament? Well, I just want to tell you, and maybe you've said that before, maybe you've thought that before, and I just want to, just as gently as I can as your pastor, to say that it's just a total load of crap. Uh, that, that's nonsense. That's absolutely nonsense that God's character would somehow change because of my interpretation of certain activities or postures that he has. Uh, if there's one thing that's clear in scripture, it is that God's character is unchanging. Thanks be to God. Because if God's character was changing, he might be as fickle as the Grecian gods who one day like you and the next day lightning bolts. Right? So thanks be to God that his character is unchanging. I just, what I'd like to show you today as we, we kind of uh, look at the whole of scripture through this lens of grace, I'd like you to see that from beginning to end, the story of the scripture and the story of the cosmos is a story of God's grace. Now, we, we've been looking at specifically in this series is we've been looking at uh, the Newer Testament, which is written in Greek. I've been looking at the word charis, which is generally translated as grace. Uh, but that idea doesn't begin in the New Testament. In fact, this idea of God's grace spans the scriptures. And, and, and one of the best uh, uh, tools I've found to helping understand it and describe it and helpful to me to understand is through uh, this uh, group called the Bible Project. You guys ever heard of the Bible Project before? Uh, I, got, I cannot uh, uh, recommend them more highly. They do what's called explainer videos, where they take these really big concepts of scripture and they, they artistically explain it in like five minutes or less. So I went to seminary and paid a ton of money and a ton of time to do what they do in five minutes. And I wish I would have known about the Bible project when I was in seminary. I would have gotten better grades. So uh, take a look at this video. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at the second key word in this statement, gracious. The Hebrew word is chanun, which is related to the Hebrew noun chen. This word chen is often translated as grace or favor. And if you study how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find a fascinating story. 
One meaning of chen is delightful or favorable. In the Psalms, a skilled poet is said to have lips of chen. That is, he can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or a dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of chen. It attracts attention and favor. This is why chen is often the word used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. In these cases, chen could be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther, who approaches the king of Persia to ask that she and her people be spared from death. She calls this a request for chen. And because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her wish. So, giving a gift of favor is chen because it's motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve, not a generous gift. Like Jacob, who cheated his brother Esau, ran away, and then after 20 years wants to come back and make things right. So he comes to Esau asking, may I find chen in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what is fair, but for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to delight in his brother Jacob and show him grace that he doesn't deserve. Now, chen requires a generous spirit, which people sometimes have. But in the Bible, the one who shows more chen than anyone else is God. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they don't deserve. And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with these people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they're sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And the biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, they describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the Apostle Paul, we're like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. And as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. And this is what it means that God is gracious. 
So we see that grace is at the very center of God's character. And so what I'd like to do as we think about and explore uh, the entirety of the story of the cosmos, I just want to kind of set the, the, the space here for a minute. Uh, I've, got, I've got just a, a, like the Caleb Campbell real quick overview of the Bible. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways you can, you can do this. There's all sorts of uh, ways you can kind of spell out the story of the Bible. Uh, but this is what I've done, and it is what it is. Uh, uh, also, I was limited in space. You could, we, our TV is only so wide. So that's why the things that got included, that's why they got included. Uh, and in the scriptures, you have the story of the cosmos, from creation to fall, Abraham, uh, Exodus, kingdom, exile. And then uh, you have this division in the scriptures, usually referred to as the two testaments, old and new. You have Christmas, Jesus' ministry, Good Friday, Easter, and then the promised restoration. So uh, have you guys ever gotten a calendar for Christmas? Tell me about what's on the calendar. You guys got, anyone got cats? No, I mean, it's a serious question. I see them at the mall all the time. I don't know who's buying cat calendars. Who's got cat calendars? Anybody? Dog calendars? No? How about a calendar that like a child made? Anybody got one of those? I have one in my house that's two years old. It, I don't know how long it takes for the dates to get resynced again, but we're just waiting for that day. Uh, so there they are, uh, your calendar. Now your calendar, your calendar, just like my calendar, by and large, if it's hanging on a wall or on a desk or something, it usually spans about what period of time? Uh, what, what's that? Uh, a year, a year usually, right? The discount calendars only have 10, but the, the ones that are full price, you get 12 full months. And, and so you get a year, uh, but if you have like a digital calendar or something, you can like span all sorts of different years. In, in fact, um, what uh, year is it currently? What, do we, what numerical value do we ascribe to this year? 2020. Now, has there only been 2020 years, like in human history? Now, that's weird that, that, that we would, like in our common vernacular, have like 2020, 2020 years, uh, be what we would refer to as this cycle of 12 months that we're currently in. That seems strange, because... If you go back 2020 years, uh, was there stuff happening before then? Like all sorts of stuff. In fact, when you, if you were to refer to stuff that happened back then, like, I don't know, like the Greeks or the Egyptians or whatnot, uh, how would you refer to that time? Like, it's interesting. It's all funny because what we're doing right now with counting time is we're going what we would call forward in time. But when you count back, you get to that, like, that, that critical moment when there's no more years, like in the current cycle, you start counting backwards. You guys ever notice that? Like the larger the number in this current spectrum of time, the further along it is, but you go back that way. And it's almost like, like somebody who is creating a calendar, maybe around sixth or eighth century, uh, was trying to uh, focus our mind uh, day to day on one particular event in human history. Doesn't it seem like that's something that's like someone's trying to do? Uh, if you guys are familiar with, the, there's different calendars, like there's the Mayan calendar, which didn't have 2020 uh, on it, I don't think. I think it ended at 2012. Uh, so they were eight years off from the, uh, you know, the apocalypse that is, um, uh, right. And then there's, there's like the Julian calendar, but, but we have like the Gregorian calendar. And the Gregorian calendar was uh, created in the sixth century. Uh, and they centered the calendar on what uh, event, at least in their mind? The birth of Jesus. In fact, 
depending on your upbringing, depending on the culture that you were raised in, uh, you, you may even refer to this current set of 2020 years as uh, 2020 AD. So some people refer to it as common era, uh, and that's been around for a few hundred years, but, but others will refer to it as AD, which is a little, a little reference uh, to Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Which Lord? Well, actually, uh, the, the trick is, if you know the B.C. part, you guys ever heard of B.C. and A.D.? Uh, the B.C. is just before Christ. So there it is in your cat calendar is a testament to the fact that Christmas has some sort of like really profound meaning, not only in December, but also for all of the cosmos. In fact, Christmas, uh, I would argue, is one of the crucial uh, pinnacles in the story of the cosmos. I'd like to prove that to you by just kind of doing an overview of the Bible. Uh, we're just going to zoom in on three parts. If you were to look at your, um, if you have a Bible and you were to open up to the first page, you, you would see uh, the book of Genesis, which talks about creation. And the book of Genesis starts like this, in the beginning, classic opening line, way better than Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Did you guys see the new Mandalorian? <laughs> Whoa. All right. We're going to do a sermon on that someday, but not today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the story of uh, creation, that God creates humanity in his image and likeness with inherent dignity, worth, and value. And he tells humanity that, that, that we are to be co-rulers with him, that we're to mirror the character of God and mirror the role of God, namely being creative, being an organizer, be, you know, uh, filling the earth and subduing it. And then humanity, made in the image and likeness of God, had a choice to make. And some of us may be familiar with uh, this, it's kind of this infamous moment where, where humanity is told not to eat from a, the fruit of a particular tree. And if you think that this whole mess was started because God is really jealous about fruit, you might be missing the point. The point is not about fruit, it's about cosmic rebellion, because what humanity decided to do, made in the image and likeness of God, humanity turned their back on God, basically said, I'm going to decide for myself what I will define as right and wrong, and I will take whatever I want. I will be God, no thank you to you, and we go our own way. This is called sin. This is rebellion against God. Would you agree that that is cosmic rebellion? Okay, so here's the deal. You know when you create uh, a whole people group made in your image? You know when you do that? And, uh, stop me if this has happened to you. And you create this people you know, out of nothing. You give to them life and life abundant. You give to them all the things they need to sustain uh, their good creation. You, you give them everything they need for a joy-filled life. And what are they, you know when this happens to you when you create a, a, a people group and they give you the finger? And they say, we're going to be our own God. No, thank you. You know when that happens to you? What do you like? What do you generally do when you have your own creation rebel against you? you? I'll tell you what I would do, although this hasn't happened to me yet. And maybe it hasn't happened to you either. But when, if I was God and my creation was rebelling against me, I would go over to my record player. I'd go through my catalog of amazing records I would find Metallica's Kill Em All album. I would take it out. I would take it out of its sleeve. I'd place it. I'd turn the volume up. And I would destroy my rebellious creation. And I would start over. Right? 
I, I cer that's certainly what I would want because I would be offended, I would be hurt, I would be like, well, we haven't even gotten to page four yet and y'all are already in rebellion against me. No thanks. And could God, could God certainly do that? And yet he doesn't. Why? So, so let's just pause just for a minute. Is creation a gift? Is life a gift? What, I'll just put it another way. What did you do to earn your life breath? Is your life breath something that is owed to you or something that's gifted to you? So the opening page of the scripture is a gift. God creates the universe and then gives to humanity the rights, so to speak, to keep it and to multiply and to fill it for their enjoyment and for his glory. And yet humanity takes this good gift, says, this is mine, and breaks it. And so now we have a problem. How does God restore his good gift? And I know that I'm just going to kind of blow through some of this. Uh, this. This is just such a profound story and a profound truth. But God creates, humanity rebels, and it's oftentimes called the fall. You get to the 12th page in Genesis, the 12th chapter in Genesis, and you will discover that God plans on restoring the broken gift that his own creation destroyed and fractured by giving another gift. In fact, he promises to Abraham, this guy, just kind of like randomly shows up in the story. God takes this dude named Abraham and he says to Abraham, out of you, I'm gonna make a great nation. And through you, through your line, through your nation that I'm gonna create out of you, you will be a blessing to all the other nations. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? Now, pause. What is our expectation? Our expectation is, is that, this that, that immediately he'd be having kids because you gotta make a nation somehow. And they would all be righteous and upright. And they would be like, you know what? We learned our lesson back in the garden. We learned our lesson of that cosmic rebellion from the Adam and Eve account. Uh, we're going to stay on the straight and narrow so that we can be a blessing to all the nations. That's what you would expect to happen. Guess what happens instead? God takes Abraham, promises to make him into a great nation. They grow and grow and grow. And every generation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, into Joseph's generation, every generation sucks. <laughs> They're not good at being faithful to God. They are not good at mirroring God's character to the nations. In fact, they're selfish. They're, they're, uh, uh, oh my goodness. I mean, one of the worst things we can do is read this biblical account and think, these heroes of the faith, they lived lives that I should model my life after. Certainly they had faith-filled moments. I'm not debating that. But these characters do not exist in Scripture to serve as moral exemplars. I'll prove it to you. Just go read your Bible and tell me if you think you want to live that way. Like people say all the time to me, oh, Caleb, you know, I, I want to learn about biblical marriage. Well, which kind? 
There's the abusive kind in the Bible. There's the polygamous kind in the Bible. There's the kind in the Bible where it's only a transaction. And then there's the righteous kind in the Bible. Do you mean a Jesus-centered marriage? I'm all about that. But just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that we're supposed to like mirror our, shape our lives around it. In fact, I think a lot of it's there to show us how desperately we need God's grace. So he makes this nation uh, through Abraham, and here's the deal. By the time you get to the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there's a new tension. The people of Abraham, the, the Hebrews, they have grown and grown and grown and grown, but they're in captivity in Egypt. So as Exodus starts, you've discovered that they're in captivity. They don't even have their own land. They don't have their own king. They're supposed to be a great nation, but they're just slaves in Egypt. Is that a, is that a dramatic tension? Right, because through this nation, all the nations of the earth are to be blessed, and here they are in Egypt, and they're enslaved. And so what God does as a grace gift is he redeems his rebellious people out of the bondage of slavery. Now, he sends Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, who is like the king of Egypt, and uh, he says, uh, let my people, um, let my people, what was it? Go, you're right. Moses says, let my people go. And guess what Pharaoh does? He does not do that. He says, you want me to give up all this free labor? No, thanks. And so God, in an act of grace, redeems his people. And then you've got his people. They've, they've been redeemed from slavery in the land of Egypt, and they're now in the desert on their way to the promised land. But here's the rub. Do you think that a people who've recently been redeemed from slavery, who have in their heritage this promise that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed because the gift of creation is broken because we've been rebellious, do you think this people would learn their lesson and say, you know what? We've had too much of this dismay. We've had too much of this destruction. We've had too much of this violence. We've had too much of this rebellion. We're going to be the people who do it right this time? Or do you think that they would succumb to what most of us succumb to, which is once more turning their own way, defining right for themselves, and taking what they want? What, what do you think happens? Option two, right? And so you get in the book of Exodus, we're going to zoom in here in a second, this moment where God is describing himself to his people. And in fact, uh, four of the Jewish people at the time, they, 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 at least chronologically, they did not have a lot to go on on what type of God God was. They didn't quite know about his character. And so there's this, uh, I think this is the first place, at least on my reading of scripture, where God himself speaks about his own character to his people. And he's going to use his own words to describe the type of God that he is to this rebellious people during this uh, point. It's this moment in uh, the story of Exodus where they're at this place called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the wedding happens. What I mean by that is this. It is at Mount Sinai that God makes a covenant with his people. He says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And this is my expectations for this relationship. He makes covenant with his people. And even in the covenant making, the people are showing their rebellion. But we'll see what he says to Moses here in the Exodus. The Lord passed in front of him, so the Lord passes in front of Moses and proclaimed, okay, who's about to speak? God. And he's about to describe his own self. The Lord, the Lord is. TV time out. Now, have you ever heard of this false idea that the God of the Old Testament is one way, but the God of the New Testament is just wonderful? You guys ever heard that before? I want you to see that in the beginning of the scriptures, you have this. 
God describing his own self. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Remember that, love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Forgiving what? This, right? Sin, rebellion. Forgiving the rebellion. Did you even see the word rebellion in the text? Did you guys see the word rebellion in the text, right? Specifically naming this, right? Turning their backs on God. What kind of a God is God? He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love. How long? How many generations? Now, TV time out. I don't think that's meant to be taken literally. I think the thousand is there to say forever. Faithful love to a thousand generations. Doing what? Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Is, the, is God, as he's revealed himself in the Older Testament, a gracious God? Now, I want you guys to remember this, right? So f- abounding in faithful love. Now, real quick, this compassion and grace thing, I, 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 I'm going to borrow uh, uh, this point from a, a fellow pastor who, who said this, that compassion is a feeling word and grace is a doing word. And I, and I think he's right. That compassion is what God feels towards us and grace is how God acts towards us because that language of grace is always tethered to action. To put it another way, and this is... Uh, borrowed from a, a fellow pastor. When a mother hears a crying, hungry baby, what she feels is compassion. And then when she picks the baby up to nurse, that's grace. Grace is the acting. Compassion is the feeling. Do you see it? Okay, so God is both compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. It goes on. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Everyone say, hold up. Hold up. Now, were we feeling good here? We were feeling so good. Oh my goodness, we were like, yes, compassion, grace, love. And then let's see what it says next. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Ah, Now, why do we feel a little And So let me ask a trick question. Is God gracious or just? Now, and I'm going I'm to fly by this point, and actually much of the scripture uh, that we have in our Bibles is written to address this tension, or at least this, uh, these two points. Number one, one of the reasons why we feel is because we think that grace and love and steadfast love and compassion are opposite of justice. And I want to tell you that for those of you who have suffered injustice profoundly, I I know you don't think that. For those of us that have lived a predominantly comfortable life, this is a tension for us because perhaps we've not really been the victim of a great injustice. But I want you to see who is God speaking to? He's speaking to people, a group of people who were recently emancipated from what status? Slavery. Hundreds of years of slavery. Do you think that generation after generation after generation of slave would have maybe once in a while been the victim of injustice by evil oppressors? 
And when you're the victim of an injustice by an evil oppressor, what do you want? You want justice. And if your God says, I love you, but I don't care about justice, do you think that God really loves you? And so here we have this beautiful, profound tension of God's grace, love, compassion, and his justice, and his commitment to justice. And by the way, just, I just want to, uh, I'm going to give you like the 30-second answer. The way that we ultimately see this pursuit and commitment to justice and commitment to love on display is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God gets justice, and he takes on the wages of the justice himself so that he can be both just and justify those of us who are in rebellion. And if you'd like to know more, read the book of Romans. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Probably the right stance to take, don't you think? I mean, when you're speaking with God directly, uh, this is probably not the right stature. Then he said, this is Moses now speaking, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, right, that unearned or undeserved favor, if I found it with you, my Lord, please go with us, okay? So, so God's grace is not only in the act of sparing his rebellious people, but also, and I want you to see, being with them. Notice how Moses pleads. Please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked or arrogant or a, a, a belligerent people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Is God a gracious God? Now, let's zoom forward. So you have the Exodus story. God takes his people. And, and by the way, after this covenant is made, do you think that they shape up and fall in line and say, we're going to live righteously. We're going to mirror the image and character of God so that we can be a blessing to all the nations? Do you think that's what they do? That is not what they do. They continue to rebel. And so though they have a kingdom, they find that uh, God has allowed um, other evil empires to now take them into exile and to some degree or the other, they're back to where they started. And so by the time you get to the Gospel of Matthew, the Christmas account, what you have is this. You have a people group who are living in exile under the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire. Though they are not enslaved, they do not have their own land, they do not have their own people, and everyone is wondering, did God give up on the promise to bless the world through us? And there's a hope-filled longing that one day God would give the ultimate expression of his grace gift and restore his gift of the cosmos. Okay, uh, you guys ever seen the movie Peanuts? No, the Peanuts Christmas, what's it called? Is it just Peanuts Christmas? Charlie Brown Christmas, thank you very much. Uh, and you know that scene where um, the dude, is, it Linus, is Linus the one with the blanket? Where, where he reads the Christmas account? You know, he reads the Gospel of Luke because the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew both give an earth view of the Christmas story. They're both looking at the Christmas story from the view of people dwelling on earth. 
But the Gospel of John, in my opinion, also gives a Christmas story. But what John does is John gives, in the Gospel of John, John gives a cosmic Christmas story. He's speaking through the lens of the cosmos, so to speak. And this is what he says. And it sounds like weird language, but I think it's pretty profound. He refers to Jesus not as Jesus, but as the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. Okay, TV time out. You guys ever seen a little nativity scene? How many of y'all have one in your house? And you got a little, you got a little uh, baby in a manger? You guys, have, you guys have seen this before? That is a reminder of John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt where? Among us, right? We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father. Remember in Exodus how God referred to himself, the character qualities that God referred to himself. Do you remember that gracious was one of those character qualities? From the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, these are also words used to describe God. He describes himself in Exodus 34. The best I can tell is the author here of the Gospel of John, I think he's riffing on Exodus 34. I think he has in his mind the redemptive story of his people out of slavery, and he sees in Jesus the ultimate expression of the grace gift that was promised so many years before. Now, you continue on in the Gospels. You see uh, Christmas, you see Jesus' ministry, and then you get to Good Friday and Easter. Good Friday, where we reflect upon the death and burial of Jesus, and then Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, his conquering over Satan, sin, and death. But you know there's more Bible after Easter, right? There's, there's a thing called the book of Acts, and it talks about how the church uh, advanced, how the good news of Jesus advanced throughout the Roman Empire. And then you get all these interesting letters of early Christians trying to work out what faith in Jesus meant in their real-life circumstances. And then you get to this super weird book of the Bible called Revelation. You guys ever tried to read Revelation? Right? Is it weird? Now, y'all... There ain't no seminary professors in here, I don't think. Is Revelation a weird book to read? Okay. There's dragons and such. I mean, there's part of it that's like, did I accidentally put Harry Potter in the back of the... I mean, what is going on here? And so while Revelation is difficult for many of us to read and to understand, and I, I'm fascinated by Revelation, I love the book. Uh, I, don't think, um, that I, I don't think we give it justice. I also think we try to make it do too much, especially today by calling people the Antichrist and, and whatnot, uh, which I've been known to call people in my day. How does Revelation end? The book of Revelation promises or foretells the making whole again of the broken gift that God has given because of his ultimate expression of grace, namely himself. Jesus is on the center of the throne. Jesus restores, redeems and restores humanity and redeems and restores the cosmos. The end of Revelation, you have a whole, I need you to hear me on this. The, the Bible concludes painting a picture of our future, being embodied humans who are restored and redeemed in a restored cosmos, a real physical, tangible space where we dwell with God 
and he dwells with us. What you have in Revelation is what we had in Genesis 1 and 2, only restored. The gift is made whole again because of his ultimate gift of grace. That is the story of the cosmos. And here's the last line. This is the last line of your Bible. The grace or the grace gift of the Lord Jesus be with whom? Everyone. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through Jesus, the ultimate expression of God's grace, gift given for you and me, the gift of the cosmos, the gift of life is redeemed and restored. From the first page to the last page of your Bible, it's all grace. I'm going to talk to the Christians just for a minute. And I'm going to just warn you and encourage you at the same time. I'm going to caution you in this. There can be occasion where we think that the time that we need God's grace is when we repent, when we turn from sin and we believe in the gospel. By the way, anyone who turns and believes in Jesus, Jesus says yes to. To put it another way, anyone who wants Jesus gets Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel of God's grace. But there may be a temptation for those of us that are Jesus followers to think that only in that moment of turning do I need God's grace. But what I would encourage you in is this, is if the first to the last page of the scripture is saturated with and relying upon God's grace, then every breath I breathe is grace. Dallas Willard says this, we burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel on takeoff. The gifts of the Spirit are grace. The provision of a meal is grace. That's why sometimes we refer to it as saying grace. The people in my life, the situations I find myself in, the thoughts that I think that are compelled and, and redeemed by the power of God, the, the way that I live in the world, the way that I serve others, the way that I give to others, it's all a grace gift of God to you and to me. God is gracious. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we see in your scripture a view of the cosmos that is not, um, oh, it's, it's so compelling and yet sometimes difficult to understand. And so, Spirit of the living God, would you moment by moment guide our steps and our thoughts and our actions that we might be a people who live this grace. And as we celebrate Jesus Christmas, your birth, we give you thanks in response to your grace gift. Would you empower us to be gracious ourselves? Jesus, we pray these things knowing that you love us and you're powerful to bring them about. And so we entrust ourselves to you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Church family, I love you. More importantly, Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. Merry Christmas.